2: Hey guys, welcome to episode 140 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well and ready to get into a true crime case. But at the top of the show, I just wanted to take some time to tell you that we appreciate all of the amazing reviews that have been left for us. We love you and we wish we could respond to each of you individually because sometimes the reviews are so heartfelt that we just want to reach you the phone and hug you guys because they're so cute sometimes. The reviews help the podcast, so we appreciate it. And if you have yet to leave a review, it would be so helpful if you did. And if you want two bonus episodes of this podcast, consider joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash couple. Okay. I always like to just get it started, but then I know it's always like people are like, come on, we just want to hear it.
1: I know. We well, just want to I get think to you it. do a good job. I, there's been times where you know you've stretched it pretty, you know, like long, but that's okay. You have things to say. That's important. But I know. Uh,
2: well, sometimes there's like messages, I guess, to say. Yeah. Like school announcements at the beginning of every day. Exactly. You know. Yeah.
1: It's almost like uh, you have to have those before you start your day. So.
2: <laughs> okay. So without any further ado, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Always. Now, before I even get into the beginning intro of the episode, something that I want to do is just give you a trigger warning. Because the case that we're going to cover today, although I know you're true crime listeners, and some of us consider ourselves hardened vet true crime listeners, but this case was very intense. And there is a lot of violence that takes place um, when it comes to the victims and there will be times where things are going to be really detailed and I will let you know to fast forward. So I just want to give that warning at the beginning of this episode. Okay. Does that make you nervous?
1: No, not at all. Okay. I think after doing like 140 plus episodes between this and Patreon, I think, uh, I think I can handle it.
2: Oh, this is going to be a rough one.
1: So that you you're telling me this is going to test my resolve. Yeah. Okay.
2: There are times, remember this week when I was doing the research for the episode, because our office, like, our chairs are back to back, so I'll be doing research for the podcast and writing the episode, and John will be playing video games behind me, just like, you know, screaming at eight-year-old children, I guess. I don't know what you're doing or <laughs> who you're yelling at, but it's very intense. They
1: are not eight years old, <laughs> but okay.
2: Um, but he'll turn around after, like, saying something totally wild, and I'll just be, like, crying. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know what? You're right, actually. Now that you bring it up, I did turn around and I was like, are you OK? I'm like, like no,
2: I, this case. Wow. This is yeah, a rough I, you know, one.
1: you're right. Actually, I do. I do recall that. But anyway, for all my video game lovers out there, you know how it is when you play multiplayer games. You know, there's a lot of people out there that say some weird things.
2: And so. you say and you are one of them.
1: Yes, but <laughs> I think that most people top what I say. So. OK,
2: yeah, I don't get to hear the other side. So weather in the Florida Keys is usually quite favorable. After all, it's home to the southernmost part of the continental United States. But those who know the area well will say that late August to early September is when they get the most rainfall, and when the most tourists should avoid the islands off the Florida Straits. And such was the case on August 21st, 1991, as a heavy storm hit Tavenier, Florida, located just west of the Tavenier Creek. The residents of the coastal area bunkered down in their homes and prayed the power wouldn't go out. But what the residents of South Airport Road didn't know was that just feet away, the raging winds and pounding rain was drowning out the sounds of their neighbor's screams as they were being murdered
0: police say the suspect 31 year old jeffrey dahmer has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment we are all evil in some form or another are we not lock your doors lock your windows if you have the ability to provide additional security devices then
2: by all means do so in 1987 at the age of 26 michael mcivor was known by those who loved him to be an amazing and nurturing man. However, like many men that are in their mid-twenties, he lacked direction. And that was until he met 25-year-old Susan Michelle Imel, who went by the nickname of Missy. Missy was going to school to be a teacher. She was pretty and smart, and she gave Mike the push that he needed to turn his talents and potential into a reality. They were a beautiful couple inside and out and their families couldn't have been happier for either of them. The couple chose to buy a house together in Tavernier, Florida, which was situated in the Florida Keys. The reason why Mike chose this location was because he was an aviation mechanic and very into planes. He always had been, even since he was a child, and aviation was kind of like a family business for the MacGyvers. Where they lived at 232 South Airport Road was perfect because their subdivision had a private like airplane landing strip that would allow the residents of the community to come and go as they pleased. And they had really large front yards so they could and I wouldn't call it a yard. Like I guess you could say driveway because that's where everyone would park their planes.
1: And that is pretty cool. To just have that as a convenience right outside your house.
2: Yeah, especially when you live at a location that you need, like, boat to travel to. I mean, you can drive off of the Florida Keys, but sometimes that could, I could imagine, get a little congested in the summertime. And then with the plane, you have so much freedom. And also there was a docking, like a boat docking place right across from where their house was.
1: So pretty much you can drive Boat or fly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they were living the transportation dream. Really? <laughs> and just the normal dream because the Florida Keys are so beautiful.
1: I mean, they are. Imagine trying to buy a house there now. I'm sure it's expensive.
2: Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> now, the just to give you more of an idea of what their house looks like, um, because they are in the Keys and it's... A known area, you know, if hurricanes come through, it can get pretty bad. And flooding, as you can imagine, would be an issue. So all of the homes were stilted. So they were up high. Okay. In 1990, the couple got married in a small ceremony at their house. From home video footage of the wedding, it's evident that they were truly in love with each other. And it was just a really adorable video to see because it's like them, you know, giving their vows to each other and it's just really beautiful and their family seems so happy for them. At the time of the murders, Mike was a man with many hats. He was a pilot, an aviation mechanic, and he also renovated old airplanes. Missy was a third grade teacher at a local elementary school and things were going great for them. But that brings us to the summer of 1991. It was late August, August 22nd to be exact. And it was the first week of school, which for teachers is always really hectic. So on that Thursday morning, Missy was a no-show at work, something that's kind of a big deal for a teacher. Because when someone just doesn't show up to work, it's not like, oh, well, the day will go on. You have to call for a substitute teacher either the night before or the morning that you're going to be absent. And if there's no sub, there's nobody watching the class. So there's just kind of like vagrant children roaming the halls especially third graders i'm sure they didn't really know what to do so it becomes a big deal that a teacher is not there and it's very evident when they are absent from work and to not call out is a really big deal
1: yeah it's almost it's just like not showing up to your post i know like when i see you do it when you do call out it's such a
2: it's a process it's a
1: hassle yeah
2: yeah i have to send an email i have to make a phone call and then i have to call the sub and then i have to post my lesson plans. Like it's a lot of work to be absent. It's actually more work to be absent as a teacher than to just go to school. But this means there's something wrong. And her coworkers know that it's just not like her because Missy would never have kind of caused this commotion at school. She was also known as a wonderful and attentive teacher. So she wouldn't leave her kids solo like this and she wouldn't have left the school in a lurch unless there was something really wrong. Because they knew that 29-year-old Missy would, even when she would call out, she'd be thinking about her kids the whole time and sometimes call to the school. So they knew she wouldn't have done this. So because something seemed so off, on their time off, her colleagues decided that they would go to her house just to make sure everything was okay. When they got to the McIver residence, they realized that both of the vehicles were still there. And so was Mike's plane. They knocked on the door and received no answer. Now, this is a house that's raised up. And obviously, like I said before, because of the hurricanes, so it's stilted. They had to climb up the outside, like the exterior stairs to get to the living location. And after they knock on the doors, they're going to peer into the windows. And it's from the window that they could see a little bit of Mike, they could see his legs and his feet. And it meant that he was laying on the floor of the living room. And he wasn't moving. So they knew that something was wrong. The women immediately called 911. She said she thought her coworker and her husband were dead inside of their home. So as soon as the call was received by dispatch, they requested first responders and detectives immediately to 232 South Airport Road. When they arrived at the scene and proceeded to go up the exterior steps of the stilted home, they too saw the legs and feet of an adult male on the ground, and this gave them cause to force entry into the home. They entered and found Mike McIver lying on the floor. He was dead. Only the police and detectives wouldn't have been able to identify him, even if they've known him their whole lives. It appears something had been put on top of his face. And they were unsure as to what it was. But then tape, masking tape, was wrapped around the rest of his face.
1: Okay, that's weird.
2: Yeah, so the only thing that was really exposed was his nose. So he could breathe, but there was something over his eyes, and then his whole head was wrapped up. There was no way to physically identify him at all
1: i wonder now if that was done post or pre uh mortem mortem yeah that would change a lot of things i think
2: yeah but i (laughs) think that's that's definitely something that would be done before to either like incapacitate the victim confuse them or you know if someone can't see they're totally or hear because they have tape all around their ears they're super disoriented
1: well it's uh, the reason why I say it that way is because remember that one case we covered about uh the old the older gentleman that was taped to his chair
2: oh yes, Frank Bonner,
1: right so like in a case like that that was that was done to s- subdue him so he couldn't go anywhere right and could this have been something similar where he couldn't see and it like I don't know, and it was a way for them uh this person to subdue him as well if he can't see what's going on and he can't take the tape off
2: and he can't hear yeah. either yeah, well, not hear well. Mike was wearing only a white t-shirt and underwear and it would later be determined that the couple had been attacked just before they were about to go to bed. A small drop of blood sat on his shoulder and his body was also wrapped um, in masking tape but not covered like his face was. It was like in random places his body was wrapped and looking at his body he did look like he had bruises in places but something that was very prominent and told the story of how this man must have died was there was a very deep um, footprint impression on his throat.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Yeah. So it was very clear that this man died a brutal death. Knowing that there was a second person in the house, Missy McIver, the woman whose coworkers had come to check on her, they continued through the house. But the shocking brutality of the first crime scene that they witnessed still would not be able to prepare them for what they were about to see in the master bedroom. They knew that the next place they should enter was the bedroom because within the entryway there lie a piece of clothesline rope foreshadowing what they were about to see. Missy's naked body was found on top of the comforter on her bed. Her ankles had been bound together by a belt layers and layers of masking tape and clothesline rope her wrists had been bound behind her back with another belt in a praying position two belts then connected her wrists to her ankles she had been hogtied around her neck was a makeshift garrote. it had been fashioned using a necktie and a black sash it was clear that all of these items had come from within the home because the couple's drawers were all open, and their clothing and other ties and belts were strewn all around the room. The sash had been wrapped tightly around her neck several times. Missy's eyes had been covered with masking tape, but the way the tape haphazardly crossed over her face, mostly her eyes, seemed that the person did this in a frenzy, or at least in a state, that they hadn't been in when they covered Mike's face because that seemed to have taken a lot of time and there was precision in doing it. In the process of taping her eyes, her hair was a tangled mess in huge knots wrapped within the tape and just underneath the comforter some personal items would be found along with what Missy must have been wearing at the time of the attack. There was a nightshirt and a pair of underwear. The buttons on the nightshirt were broken. The shirt must have been ripped off so violently that it would have caused the button shanks to separate from the buttons themselves. And the underwear had been cut off her body. And that was evident by two marks at the hip locations of either side. So the hip area of the underwear was sliced open. Based on the interviews and testimony later heard at trial, The detectives and the police officers that were first to arrive at the scene that day said they would never be able to forget the images that they saw at that crime scene. Detectives told the officers to put up crime tape and establish a perimeter so no one could gain entry without authorization. Next, a crime scene team was called in to process the house. In addition to that, a member of the crime scene team was tasked with filming the scene. The footage of that has been released to certain media outlets, so it can be seen online. But what they do to protect the victims is none of the images that were filmed of the crime scenes were released. It's really just um, the detective taking you through like the, the house and what the house looked like.
1: Which is really good because it, it does preserve the crime scene, so you could go back at a later time and look at it. Because obviously, it's not going to stay like that forever.
2: No, that's why I think filming crime scene locations are really important. Um, but then it's also important to maintain the dignity of the victims. Yeah. So it is good that when the footage was released, it was only of the house. So like the portions of the house that didn't, that weren't the crime scene. Once the masking tape was fingerprinted and swabbed for evidence, it was removed from Mike's face. The detectives were curious to see what had been underneath. They discovered that it had been a sock a sock had been placed over his eyes and then whoever did this methodically wrapped masking tape around his head to incapacitate or disorient him blood trickled down his nose and mouth once the tape was removed his face and throat where the footprint was was badly bruised Mike had been found in the living room and around him were books and papers. It was clear that there had been a serious struggle and it must have taken place between Mike and whoever entered the home. An item that was found near the living room in the kitchen was a metal bar that measured about three quarters of an inch in diameter and two to three feet in length. It was sent to the lab because it might have been involved in the beating of Mike McIver. But just above that metal rod... This is really sad because this was also in the video footage. Um, There was a chalkboard, and on that chalkboard, Missy had left a message to Mike, and it read, I love you. That is sad. In the master bedroom, the personal items that were found to have been under the comforter, along with the clothes that Missy had been wearing, um, it was realized that they had been emptied from her purse. So the person who did this emptied her purse out on the bed. In the room, there was also an address book, and it seemed to have been tossed aside. But the book was found open to the letter G, and a lot of pages had been ripped out of the book.
1: Um, That's interesting, actually, because I, now I'm, I'm wondering, is this, I mean, obviously, it seems like that that person must have been there for maybe to, you know, to burglarize the home as well. But to take the pages out, it's almost like are, were you looking for somebody that they that, that they might have known and that's or why you them, pulled, yeah or that yeah, like or and that's why they pulled them out. That way, if they were to go look to see the people that they know, it wouldn't connect them yeah. to them, you know
2: <laughs> but I think that's like a glaring way to also draw attention to yourself.
1: I mean that's true, but I mean, I guess it's they're trying to put a, any kind of roadblock in front of the investigators' way. you know what I mean?
2: I agree with you. And on the dresser, there was also something that the detectives felt was out of place. It was a pile of receipts from local gas stations. A twenty-two caliber shell casing was found on the floor. And something that would be noticed upon a second search of the master bedroom later would be um, that there was a hole in a bedroom curtain. So neither of the victims had been shot, but a shot, it seemingly had been fired. The sliding glass door of the bedroom had been left open. And the box fan that the couple must have put on before bed was still blowing air into the room. The crime scene investigators wanted to work fast. The night before, the night the couple had been murdered, there had been a heavy rainstorm. And the aftermath of that, in the August heat, was hot, humid air. And because the sliding glass door was left open, it was causing the bodies to be covered in moisture and they were reaching lividity and decomposition quicker because of the heat. They also wanted all of the evidence to remain as fresh as possible, so they wanted to work as quickly as they could. The investigators then used a Lumalite to detect semen stains. And the ripping and cutting of Missy's clothes implied that a sexual assault took place. And they were correct in thinking that, because many semen samples were collected. Um, once the light revealed where they were there were three spots on the sheets themselves and i don't want to get into graphic detail of the crime scene information to preserve the dignity of the victim but it's clear that she had been brutally raped it was horrible and an animalistic attack and really the first crime scene um, description that elicited kind of like a visceral response from me but um I understand why those men who saw what they saw would never be the same. So the sheets, comforter and mattress pad were all bagged and taken in as evidence to be processed further. But the most heartbreaking part of the investigation of that house was not really captured in the living room or the master bedroom, but the spare bedroom down the hall where it was revealed to the detectives that missy was pregnant
1: oh man
2: now when she was found she was hogtied face down onto the bed so her stomach wasn't necessarily visible but when they went into the spare bedroom down the hall they found out that the guest room they were actually renovating the whole entire house there was plastic and paper everywhere but the guest room in particular was being converted into a nursery. The mcivers were expecting. And Missy had been eight months pregnant.
1: you got to be kidding me. She
2: was very pregnant. And that's something that also made the sexual assault devastating to think about when the detectives saw what they saw. And again, you can understand why this was so horrific, this crime. As the investigation poured into the spare bedroom, many interesting things were found there as well. The sliding glass doors into that bedroom were open, too, and a ladder had been found propped outside of the balcony to get into the sliding glass doors.
1: Oh, so you're saying that, okay, hold on. So you're saying that this person didn't take the stairs because the house is on stilts. Correct. So they didn't take the stairs. They used a long ladder.
2: To get to the balcony of the spare bedroom. Okay. And that's probably how they gained entry into the home, through the sliding glass doors in the guest bedroom. And the reason why they thought this as well, because also hanging from the balcony of the spare bedroom was a cut clothesline. And now the detectives knew where the clothesline had come from that was used in the commission of the murders. And that was kind of the final clue that made everything come together. Like, why would this person use clothesline? Because they cut it from the house. Then there was something else that they found when they were doing a perimeter check of the entire house. And it was something that was pretty troubling because it hinted at a criminal who might have done something like this before. And from horror movies. The phone lines to the home had been cut with a sharp instrument.
1: From the outside.
2: From the outside. Wow. So that means that, like, if Mike or Missy had even been able to get to a phone to attempt to call for help, they would have found the phone line dead.
1: This is actually terrifying because you're right. It is like a really bad movie. I mean, you have this taking place during a storm. The phone lines are cut. There's no way of reaching out to anybody. I mean, the severity of them and the way they, they look from the attack is horrible. Yes.
2: It was a very planned attack oh, on a couple and their unborn child. Do you see why this past week I've been like, check the doors?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, guys. Uh, you know, you know, it is typical for Kay to ask me to look around and to check doors and I've windows I've been so and stuff, paranoid this but week. It's but been, it's been amplified.
2: This case really <laughs> had a deep impression on me yeah. for the past two weeks I've been into it. Okay, so outside, a boot impression also had been found between the two cars. But because of the weather, it was really hard to do any impressions because it had been raining so heavily the night before and the soil was so like, easily malleable and it had kind of dissipated. The detectives also didn't think any footprints outside the house would necessarily be helpful at this point because the McIvers had been doing work to their house and there would have been a lot of workers in and out all the time, so it really would have been hard to narrow down whose boot prints were what because the footprint on Mike's neck looked like it came from a, a work boot.
1: Yeah. It which makes you think now, okay, well, could it have been someone who was doing renovations on on their or house? Or whatever work was being done there. Yeah, we um, we see that
2: happen all the time because when people are doing work on your home, they do have access to your house and they also have access to your routine.
1: Right. Okay, well, now I know what's in the house. If I wanted to go into the house and just take a real quick look and take whatever I can, I know the layout now.
2: Right. And what things they leave open. Interesting. So why? Why would anyone do this to a soon-to-be family? By all accounts, they were a lovely couple and they didn't have an enemy in the world. What they would need to do now was conduct interviews and canvass the area in order to get more information. So the couple lived in the second to last house on South Airport Road. If you were looking at the road at the stilted house to the left, there was one more house, but it was tucked even further back on the property than the others were. So they weren't necessarily next to the house of mike and missy and then obviously to the left of them were the green waters of the tavernier creek which boldly cuts its way through the keys and on the other side of the couple's house there was one other stilted home that was actually pretty close to them then across from them was a landing strip and on the other side of the landing strip was north airport road But on the other side, they had the boat dock. So there wasn't a house across from them, across from the landing strip. So really, they only had one neighbor that could have potentially seen or heard things.
1: Right. Because the way everything was positioned. Right. Okay.
2: But they go to that house and that night despite their close proximity to the to the home, they heard nothing. The storm was so loud, and they were inside. So over the winds and the rain, they said they didn't hear anything. And, you know, they looked out the window to watch the storm, but they didn't necessarily see anybody go over to Mike and Missy's house that night.
1: I mean, the storm is an insane cover for what took place there so it's going to be hard for anybody even if they did witness something to really figure out or determine like to determine if oh you know that i see someone get into the house or it's it's dark it's stormy it's hard to see
2: and it's interesting you bring that up because weather like that you know was actually pretty rare in the keys so the detectives wondered if maybe the killer or killers had chosen that night for a reason because they knew everyone would be inside
1: I mean yeah it's a, I mean it's a great place to start. I would also say I would figure out who they used to do the contracting on their on their renovation. Figure out who was there, how long they were there, get a list compile that. I would also uh, talk to friends, family, you know, all that normal stuff. But then I would also do these people have anybody that doesn't that don't like them. You know, just to see if anybody has any issues with them. I mean these are all things that would be the next step, I think.
2: Yeah, and that's why they're definitely going to be questioning their family members, their friends, their co-workers. And the neighbors really did love Mike and Missy. I mean, they thought they were a lovely couple, and it really bothered them that they couldn't help with the investigation anymore, but they just really didn't know anything. But what they did help with was making sure that news got around the community as quickly as possible. You know, who would have done this to this couple? And year round residents of communities like this are really tight with each other. You know, what happens when the tourists leave, you know, so they're always really close and they, they look out for each other. So it was kind of like this fear that was spreading through this area and the gossip was spreading, but it was like, This is going to be really hard for the families to hear the fact that everyone's talking about what happened to Mike and Missy because it was so brutal that people couldn't help but talk about it. But the family also now has to hear it. Oh, yeah. And it's pretty sad. But people were scared that someone was in the key that was capable of a murder like this. And would they strike again?
1: Right. Because it does seem that this person, whoever it is, has to live here. I mean, I don't think it's somebody that just took a stroll out to the Keys and decided to commit murder against, you know, know, against this couple in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like to find their home out of all the homes in the Keys, that's crazy. Uh, It has to be somebody that has walked into them at some point, uh, which is, uh, I think, even more unsettling that you probably did cross paths with this person. Right. I mean, that's just my assumption in a small area like that
2: you have had an interaction with this guy, which is more scary than not. Yeah. So of course the family had already been told what had happened. Words can't describe how the family felt. So I mean it's I would it would be a vain attempt for me to even try to begin to explain how they felt. But it was clear how much they loved and admired Mike and Missy, especially Mike's siblings. The police learned from the family that Missy was due in only a few weeks, and the couple was going to name their son Kyle Patrick. The detectives were not getting any information from the neighbors or family that they could aid in the search for this killer or killers, because it didn't seem likely that Mike or Missy would be involved in anything that would have gotten them murdered. Everybody loved them, and it it had been so abundantly clear throughout the investigation Based on the family's reactions, and really, they had lost their brother, their sister in law, their daughter, a nephew, a grandson. Like, they didn't feel like either side of the family, whether it was Missy's family or Mike's family, really was involved in the crime. So, what they wanted to do was they wanted to take a step back and look at the larger picture. First, they wanted to consider if this could have been a robbery that maybe turned violent, but that was quickly written off because nothing had been taken from the house except those address book pages. Jewelry, computers, a TV, money, all of that stuff was still at the house. And although they had to admit that it was odd that the contents of Missy's purse were strewn all over the bed, they didn't think it was a robbery.
1: Yeah I mean if you're looking at all the evidence in front of you and you see that nothing's taken it doesn't look like they they try to like find anything other than maybe find stuff to maybe you know subdue the victims but other than that nothing else out of place it kind of puts robbery out of the question so you know that is bizarre. It's like what would be the the only reason is here that they wanted to kill them. Um another thing I wanted the another connection I wanted to throw at you here is we were only talking about the maybe the contractors that were doing the renovations, uh, I guess what what was it for? The nursery.
2: Yeah, and the house there yeah, seemed to okay. have been doing work all throughout the house because there was plastic like as the police were doing the filming of the crime scene, there was plastic kind of hanging from everywhere. So it seemed like they were painting maybe doing some cabinetry work working in the nursery sanding
1: or something like that yeah the only the other thing too is we can't forget here um that they owned the the husband owned a business with his brother could it have been a worker that worked with them could it have been a client that wasn't happy with work done he did do work on planes and he also did um remodeling of old aircraft could he have had an issue with somebody there um you know could it have been a supplier? You know, when you own a company like that, you do have suppliers, especially back in 91. You're not getting everything over the Internet. You have suppliers that you call and speak to that have your address and have a way of receiving payment. You know, could it be something like that? That's true. You know, like that's a possibility that we can't throw out. I mean, that opens the door for anyone really to know who you are and where you live.
2: Right. Well, early on in the investigation, the detectives are really going to take a look at what had happened to Missy. And they felt like she was the intended victim because there had been so much violence perpetrated onto her. Right. So they're thinking that maybe she had been the intended target. That was their initial thought process.
1: To be honest, I I would have to agree with that so far. As of right now, of course. I mean, that is, she seems like she's the one that was targeted.
2: It looked like they needed to subdue and take down Mike first so then they could unfortunately do what they did to Missy. Right. Now, when you take a step back from this case, you have some really interesting clues. So looking at the crime scene as a whole, we have somebody who definitely knows what they were doing during this raging storm. They cut the phone wires. Then they took a ladder, put it up to the balcony of the spare bedroom. They knew that the, this sliding glass door would be open potentially or hoped that it would be. Then they cut the clothesline, and they obviously intended to use this clothesline. So they go into the house with a clothesline and a knife because that's what they used to cut the clothesline and the phone lines. If they got in through the spare bedroom, did this attack happen first on Missy? But then it seems like Mike would have done something about it.
1: Well, that's why I think that. It it seems like all these things... Okay, hold on. Let me just take a step back here before I mess this up. I think it's hard to believe that somebody could do all the things you just listed by themselves, period.
2: So you think there's two I, people? I
1: think there's two I, because there's just too much. You're telling me that... Come on. When we go to bed at night, you know how alert we are and how much we look at things. There's... Come on. You think that and two people... And it's all people...
2: one floor, like our house
1: Okay. Is. So do you think that two people wouldn't hear any of it going on? I understand there's a storm, but you have to put a ladder up against the house, gain entry, open doors, right? And do all these yeah. things. How do you not hear that?
2: I'm thinking, what if when that person went into the spare bedroom, Missy was obviously in the master bedroom, which is closer to the spare bedroom than the living room is, did they subdue missy quickly and that's why we saw that frenzy of tape and then maybe just put the belt around her ankles and wrists and then they went and took care of of mike
1: it's hard and then they went to back see. to missy i know it's so hard to say right because in my opinion i think the frenzy of the tape which it actually should be flip-flopped if anything
2: but they came in through the spare bedroom. Yeah,
1: but where we found him on the floor, could he have moved? He heard a noise. He maybe walked away. I mean, I don't i don't know. I would need to see a full layout of yeah. the house. But I'm just trying to say that if you think about it.
2: It seems like one person had to have been subdued while the other person was being attacked.
1: Correct. But I'm just saying, though, the frenziness of the tape, like where it's like, oh, I don't really care. I just want to stop you from moving. You think that that would be done to the husband. Right. Not the other way around.
2: Or... Or, he came in through the spare bedroom him or multiple people with a pipe because remember that pipe was found went past the master bedroom and then hit Mike over the head with it or hit him with it to kind of like knock him out and then did the taping.
1: That's a possibility. Killed him right. and
2: then went up to Missy. And then she wouldn't have known this is happening if he got in if he was knocked out at first.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean I think you're on to something. But
2: there was a struggle. Cuz a struggle was found in the room. Well,
1: that's true too. Unless the struggle took place then he he just One strike hit him and then tied him up.
2: Maybe the struggle was him falling down and that's what created the paper and books to go everywhere.
1: I I think there's so many variables of how it could have gone down. But I think the biggest thing here is I find it hard to believe one person can take care of all of that.
2: So you can imagine that the detectives, I mean, this is a pretty hard case they have in front of them.
1: Yeah. Oh, 100%.
0: For free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited
2: by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alright, guys, let's get back to the show. The next thing investigators wanted to do was retrace the footsteps of the couple. It appeared that the last time Mike and Missy had been visibly seen alive was at their child's birthing class that they attended at 9 p.m. the night of the murder. Once they got home, Missy spoke on the phone briefly with her sister-in-law, Sharon. But the time they were heard from last was at 10.30 p.m. Missy had called her sister, but her sister hadn't answered the phone, so she left a voicemail telling her that she would try to call her again in the morning. So now the police know that the phone lines had to have been cut sometime after 10.30 p.m., And that was when the killer or killers had entered the house as the couple was preparing for bed. Or maybe Mike was working in the living room and Missy was preparing for bed because they weren't attacked while they were lying in bed. It was around this time of the investigation that the medical examiner released to detectives their findings. And this is through the autopsy results. Through Mike's autopsy, it was learned that Mike's cause of death was asphyxiation by ligature. However, he also suffered a severe beating. Mike suffered an intense blow to the back of his head. There were ligature marks around his neck. A device had been wrapped several times around his neck and pulled extremely tight. And this was most likely pieces of clothesline that the intruder had brought in with them. His neck also suffered damage um, from another hit, most likely the killer stepping on Mike's neck. His larynx, hyoid bone, and epiglottis were all fractured. And that was because his neck was stepped on. So we just don't know if that was before or after he was choked to death. There was also internal bleeding from a hit to his left shoulder and significant deep bruising on his abdomen. And they thought that he was most likely stomped on when he was on the ground. So someone had stomped on his stomach and then stepped on his neck.
1: I mean, very aggressive. I mean, we're talking about up close and personal attacks between whatever was used. If that cord was wrapped around his neck, the, 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 the severe beating. I mean, this guy, this poor guy,
2: somebody. And then when detectives get this autopsy result back and I know what Missy went through, but it's also like, well, it wasn't quick with Mike either.
1: No, it wasn't. And I, and I think that, uh, I mean, I could be wrong. You know, people, some people are strong or whatever. But I feel like someone has to be, like, you have to be a big presence to, uh, like, to inflict that amount of damage.
2: Well, Or you have to be very angry.
1: Well, yeah. Well, that too, right? Because you'd
2: be surprised what anger does. Oh, yeah,
1: 100%. I just think that you, this person might be a bigger fellow, maybe, to be able to do that.
2: A bigger fellow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to be like fat man or, well, <laughs> or no, big, a big guy. guy, a big guy yeah. <laughs> well, I like fellow. Okay.
2: I, yeah. I mean, I, I, we don't have to be nice to him. He seems like a jerk.
1: You're right, actually.
2: So Missy's autopsy results are going to be equally as troubling. It's brutal. And if you don't want to hear the violence that this woman suffered in the last moments of her life or hear about the death of her unborn child, Please fast forward this podcast three minutes. The external examination of Missy's face revealed that she had several slight abrasions. The ligature mark patterns on her neck indicated that she had been moving to release herself from the constraints because not only were there ligature marks, but there were also friction marks. There was a discoloration in her face, which would indicate that blood was not exiting her head as fast as it was entering. According to the medical examiner, this is indicative of an incomplete application of ligature, which demonstrated that more than likely, a longer period of time passed before Missy lost consciousness once the rope, tie, and sash were tied around her neck, meaning that that her killer was playing a game with her. He was taking his time strangling her and switching the pressure that he was using on the ligature. So he was like incapacitating her. She was coming back and he was strangling her again. The ligature marks on her wrist also exhibited that she was struggling through friction marks. Moving down to her lower body an abrasion to her vulva and several abrasions to her legs were indicative of a sexual struggle. The medical examiner concluded, based on the totality of circumstances that she had been, and the, u- the words that were used, was sexually battered.
1: That's so cruel.
2: And Missy had been pregnant. So the fetus also received an examination. It was determined the baby, Kyle Patrick, what they were going to name him was 8 months into his development and that meant that had the baby been born at that time it would have been viable meaning that the the baby could have survived without the mother now this is a big deal when it comes to a criminal investigation because based on the examination the child lived for approximately 30 minutes after the death of his mother
1: it's really sad
2: yeah So based on the autopsy report, the detectives were now looking at a triple homicide. Yeah. Because if a child is viable, then it's considered homicide. Depending on how the district attorney wants to charge the person they catch eventually. But it's kind of up to them. But they could. It could be a triple homicide. I
1: would absolutely make that a triple homicide.
2: 30 minutes. Yeah. The semen samples that were found at the crime scene and the swabs that had been taken from the bodies were all sent into state testing labs. DNA was a possibility, but it was new at this stage in the game. And the testing of a suspect, even when they found one, would take a considerable amount of time, but at least they had those three samples. Because they needed to find a suspect to test against the samples they had, the detectives knew that they had to go back to old-fashioned detective work to solve the case. They believed that they had the key to the case in the address book. Like you said, why would a person go out of their way to rip out those specific pages? Them doing that also implied that the couple knew who did this to them, which would make sense because this seemed planned and calculated and there seemed to be rage involved. So it made sense that the couple would know this person or people. It was determined that the pages that were ripped out of the address book belonged to the letters G, H, and I. Okay. So detectives asked both families if they knew anyone associated with these letters, you know, either in their first name or their last name, that could potentially have done this or they really just asked for a list of anyone that the couple knew with G, H, or I. The only person the family could think of was a man, Leon Hardy. Now, Hardy was the handyman that had been working on the house.
1: Okay. Hmm.
2: Often when Mike was home working on things, Hardy would be there. So he definitely would have an idea as to what the family's routine was. Could this have been a deal gone wrong? Now, Leon Hardy was a local man, and he had never been in trouble. So the detectives spoke with him, and he agreed to give them DNA samples and his shoes so they could check the tread pattern against the tread that was pictured on the neck of Mike McIver. Okay, great. Another person they took DNA samples from was a man that police had thought of. Um, because when they canvassed the area and they were asking neighbors from basically the whole block, if they had seen anything, there was a man who had the same initials. Um, He had the last name Haraway, so it's H. So they decided to just ask him for DNA samples just in case, too.
1: I mean, at least everyone's being, uh, you know, very cooperative and just giving the, uh, the DNA evidence.
2: But everyone's really willing to help. Yeah. Everyone was terrified that this took place. I mean,
1: if it happened to them, it could happen to anybody there. And if he's not caught, it's it's a problem.
2: Right. So now this case, as you can imagine, was picked up by the media. A young couple, a woman pregnant, murdered in their home in the paradise of the Florida Keys. So it was everywhere. People in town and the tourists who usually headed to the area were really apprehensive about the fact that a killer was on the loose. A killer that had not one ounce of sympathy in his soul for what he had done to the McIvers. So the pressure was on for police because everyone was so frightened at what had happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, they have to catch this monster before he does it again.
2: But sometimes publicity can help a case. From the notoriety that this case received, a lot of tips came pouring in through hotlines. One of the tips that the detectives considered a good lead came from Dade County. They found out that Missy had been married before, something that really didn't come up when they spoke to the family because they hadn't thought to ask. The person stated that while Missy was living in Miami, she was married, and the man she was married to had a bit of a temper. So this could be something. If the guy had a temper and she broke things off, and now the fact that she's starting a family with Mike, like, I guess sometimes people could consider those two totally different things. Like, okay, she's, she married some other guy. Well, now she's having a baby with some other guy and that might've triggered him in some way.
1: No, I think you're right. And I think there is cause for concern, but I, I wonder now if they speak to him, if they get his DNA evidence, if he's willing and forthcoming, that would rule it out right away. 100%.
2: I agree. So do you want to know where this call came in from? Uh, yeah. A very unlikely source. Okay. A dentist.
1: A dentist.
2: Missy and her ex husband still shared the same dentist.
1: Okay, that's kind of funny.
2: Yeah. So when he learned what happened to her, um, the dentist is going to call and say, you know, I still treat her ex husband. I guess what you can say. I still see her ex husband, and he was upset at the fact that she remarried and was having a baby with someone else. So the dentist is the one who made the the phone call.
1: I mean, that is kind of nice, though. I mean, you know.
2: Yeah, I hope my dentist would be like, yeah.
1: Like, protect your honor like that and give some clues.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I'm going to have to talk to them. (laughs) So they're going to find out that Missy's ex-husband's name is Jane Billings. And Billings had a record. Nothing crazy, but petty theft was on there. And it does seem like somebody who was used to maybe being a thief committed this crime because they did seem to have some knowledge as to like what to do when. So after learning all of this, the police really wanted to speak to Gene Billings. And he, as you can imagine, denied everything. He said that he had been spending the night with friends on August 21st. He also agreed to give police a sample of his DNA to be compared to the DNA that was found at the scene. His alibi checked out, so now police just had to wait for these DNA samples to come back. Because remember, now at this point, they were testing the Leon Hardy, the guy who was working at the house, Haraway, who was one of the neighbors, and now Gene Billings.
1: I mean, at least they're putting it to good use and trying to like just get rid of every possible suspect if it doesn't match
2: exactly maybe she had her ex-husband in the phone book as idiot
1: <laughs> i mean that, that, that would well, that's kind of funny but i doubt it
2: so while the detectives waited for billings and the two other suspects dna results to come in they brainstormed about what other possibilities there could be in the case and one of the things discussed was the fact that this might not have been the killer's first time maybe what they were seeing was an escalation so had this person or people committed other break-ins with similar MOs anytime recently? So they decided to kind of look through everything that was going on. There had been a few people that were accused of things. Um, there was one break-in in particular, well, like a man that had been a thief and he was being considered in a murder case, but because this thief never committed any murders they didn't he was kind of dropped in that murder case investigation but because he was around there at the time he was thought of and no other thief in the area including this guy had this kind of like mo of climbing in through windows
1: okay hey i have something for you yeah okay it's 1990 it's 1991 right yes i don't know about you I think my grandma used to do stuff like this. I mean, I, I know it was definitely in like a – I don't want to say Rolodex, but it was definitely in a phone book. I know my parents did. What about those – what was it? G-I and – G-H-I. G-H-I. Okay. What if it was like a local place, like a restaurant, a takeout place, um, something that would tie that person like instantly to it? Yeah. It could be, right, a restaurant, uh, a convenience store, uh, any local business that, like, they would need to call.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? It could be that.
2: It could have been. What if
1: it's a restaurant, store, whatever?
2: People put everything in their address right. book. Exactly. It was people. Then.
1: Right. So it could be a place of business. It could have been. Okay. That's a possibility.
2: It is. Now, at this time, the police, as you can imagine, were getting really frustrated because they just felt like they were hitting dead end after dead end. So the investigation had to find a new direction because they were getting nowhere with what they had been doing. So the detectives decided to investigate from another angle. Instead of taking the perspective that Missy was the intended target... Maybe, kind of like you said in the beginning, they should look through the lens of Mike being the intended target. After all, nothing would hurt Mike more than someone hurting his family. Yeah. So now the focus was on Mike, and this is going to be the dismay to his brother, because don't forget they have the aviation business together. So to know Mike was to know how passionate he was about aviation, and that was really because he'd grown up on it. The MacGyvers were always in the sky. It was basically the family business. Mike's mother was a flight attendant and had her private license. In fact, she'd gotten her private license at the age of 16, which was unheard of, especially for a female back then. And it was something that the family was really proud of. His father was an airline captain, and Mike and all of his siblings were always on planes or working on planes, especially him and his three brothers. And they really liked working on aircraft engines with their father. And all three brothers ended up with various professions within aviation.
1: That's pretty cool, though.
2: Yeah. And Mike was the mechanic because he worked on planes. And it was convenient with him with his private landing strip. And he was considered to be on the straight and narrow. But although one would not really necessarily think about this too much, there was a dark seedy side of private aviation in the Florida Keys, especially in the 1980s and 90s because of the drug importation business.
1: I had a feeling you were going there. Mm-hmm. I, I really did. Yeah. It makes me think of that movie. I think it's with Tom Cruise, um, where his family is like, I, I think, I don't know all the details. I think his family or is like held hostage while the, the guy is taking trips with drugs back and forth. Sounds so like a Tom me, Cruise ma- movie. Yeah, it made me think of, uh, I think it was Tom Cruise. I could be wrong, but.
2: People are probably yelling right now.
1: Probably. you but, but anyway, yeah. But that was the concept. We're going to get a one-star
2: review. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
1: John knows nothing about movies. He can't remember anything. Well, you're probably right.
2: So what they're thinking is maybe Mike had gotten involved with the wrong kind of people, on purpose or not. And they thought the same thing about his brother. Like, they kept accusing his brother of being involved in drug trafficking. And his brother's like, we had nothing to do with drug trafficking. Yeah. But they're trying to investigate everything they can. So you really can't fault them too much, but you can imagine that the family's frustrated with this.
1: No, I mean, I can't blame them, but I do think it is a little outrageous for them to make that connection. But you might as well check it out. If you've gone this far, you might as well. Well,
2: why wouldn't you, though? Because a really big problem with drugs coming into the United States is the fact that drugs can come into the United States through private planes because nothing has to be checked through any type of security and a lot of drugs came in through the florida keys
1: no i know you are right i just don't know if it would
2: if and that it's would it's not a stretch yeah. and, and they're not necessarily blaming the brothers and saying that they were involved in drug trafficking but maybe they stumbled upon something they shouldn't have
1: yeah, you know what? You know what? Honestly, I don't have a problem with them them taking this route because they've really exhausted most of their leads. Right. So like, you know, as far, you know, with investigators that do this, I'm okay with that cuz they've gone through everything. So for them to take this kind of route is okay because there's really nothing else I don't think. It's
2: not the first thing they jumped on. Yeah. So they felt like they were kind of going into a good direction, so they decided to run with it. And after they put feelers out asking for any information regarding drug smuggling, Mike or the private airstrip, the detectives had a few calls come in. A few people said that that private airstrip, the one that is by Mike's house on South Airport Road, should be monitored more because people believed that drugs were coming in through there a lot.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: And... You know, they don't they weren't necessarily saying that Mike had any part of it, but they said it was they thought it was pretty dangerous. Then another tip came in from a man who was in jail. He said that two Colombian brothers were once looking for Mike because they wanted to buy a plane off of him, a plane that Mike was about to purchase. So at the time of his death, Mike had been in the process of buying a plane from Belize. The country had recently seized a plane that had been used in drug smuggling, and now they were auctioning it off, and Mike was looking to buy it, to flip it.
1: Okay, that's a little odd. Like, okay.
2: Yes. So, sometimes what happens in these situations is drug cartels will want to use a middleman. So in order to get their plane back, they'll have a citizen, a clean citizen, buy the plane and then purchase it back off of that citizen.
1: Okay. I mean, that makes sense.
2: It's happened before. Yeah. It's like plane laundering. Right. But, you know? <laughs> you, know or, you know,
1: but we also can't forget that planes are expensive. And to play devil's advocate, he could just be looking for a cheap plane because he knows they're expensive.
2: Right, well, and because then he can do all the work on it himself and then right. flip it. exactly. And it's not that Mike was doing this to be involved in this plane laundering, I guess you can call it. But these two Colombian brothers wanted to buy it from him because they knew he was buying it. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get it. Like, he didn't, he wasn't intend, intending to do that, but two drug dealers wanted it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So... Had something happened, like maybe you were saying Mike wanted to flip the plane, so maybe what happened was he said no to these two brothers and had they gotten mad about that or had the deal gone bad?
1: Well, I mean, if it was two brothers, I mean, that would definitely, uh, I think two people would be able to pull off a crime like this. That and makes sense.
2: it would explain the professionalism that took place.
1: My only thing is, what is the credibility of the guy telling this tale?
2: Yes, he is a jailhouse snitch.
1: Which so. I usually don't ever hold with the, you know, people that are in jail too highly because usually they just say it to get out of if any trouble that they might be in. Right. So I would just say, what's the validity of his claim?
2: Well... What they want to do first is ask the name of the brothers because they want to look into the brothers. So the man who is making this claim said that the brothers' names were Miguel and Jose Santos. And this really could be it, you know. So the investigators work hard on tracking down the Santos brothers, while other detectives are going to fly to Belize to speak to government officials to kind of get the details on the purchase of the plane. Officials in Belize knew nothing about the drug connections of the Santos brothers or in general. They did say that they really liked Mike. They kept saying he was such a nice boy. Why would anyone want to hurt him? So the detectives that went to Belize kind of came home with nothing except, you know, the reiteration of the fact that Mike was a a nice guy on the straight and narrow. And the detectives that were working on the Santos brothers weren't having much luck either. No one knew about the Santos brothers. They'd even gone to narcotics and vice and nobody had heard of them. With no other option, they go back to the informant to find out more information. And it's then that he admits he was lying.
1: Okay, see? Yeah.
2: He was lying in order to get a reduction in his own sentencing.
1: Why? What
2: a massive waste of time and and money and resources. I know. It's a shame. And the fact that you're giving hope to this grieving family.
1: I know, but you think that guy guy cares about that? I know, I know. We care. We care. But that guy does not.
2: At this point, they were just at a stalemate. It seemed as if this case would never get solved. But the MacGyver family was desperate for justice. They paid for a massive billboard and put up flyers all over the place, asking for information about the crime and offering $25,000 as a reward for anyone could help, you know, lead police to an arrest. But that didn't work either. And for years, the case went cold. Years later, the case is tackled again in hopes to solve one of the coldest cases that Monroe County police ever had. The detectives looked at the case files again and re-interviewed the family in hopes that there was some small detail that was overlooked. And, you know, that oftentimes happens. Like when we cover cases that go cold, the answer usually is in the files.
1: It's true because it's either something that has been overlooked or just... Maybe, like, a connection could not be made at the present time, but then comes out later. So, like, you, it's always there. It's right. always wrapped in a bow. And
2: you stare at something so much that you almost can't see it anymore.
1: I think what happens, too, is investigators, they get caught up with it. I guess like they get caught up with whatever they're like investigating so much so that they start to question their own ability
2: and instincts. Yes. And I
1: think that they've already figured it out, but because they're just so consumed by it, it it just, it trumps everything else.
2: I I can agree with that. I think that's a good assessment. And in addition to them looking over the files again, they're going to hire a profiler. Okay. And a profiler was brought in to look at the case. And she stated that this drug angle, this direction they went on, was all wrong. That they had it right at first. Missy was the intended target. The killer not only took his time with her, but he played sadistic games. And he murdered a baby. They were looking for a sociopath. So with the focus now being on the fact that Missy was the intended target, the family is asked again if they can remember anything strange from that day or time period, anything out of the ordinary, no matter how innocuous.
1: Yeah, like I I think that's actually a really good thing to do. Can we try to put together a timeline of either the day of or any other day that she would like whatever her routine is for the day? I mean, you know how it is. Like, if you wake up in the morning, you go to work, you know... Well, knowing you, you're always low on gas. But, you know, you go, you get gas, you drive to work.
2: I actually need gas right now.
1: Um, I know. That's why I said it. But, yeah, like, what's the routine of her? Like, what what is it like for her?
2: I I like that. Yeah. Now, the family's going to sit down with detectives and go through every aspect of that day and all of their interactions that were had with Mike and Missy. And that was when Sharon... Mike's sister brought up the fact that she had spoken to Missy after the couple got back from their Lamaze class. And she asked how her sister-in-law's day had gone. And, you know, it's really funny that you just brought up what you did. What? Because Missy told Sharon that she was upset because there was a person that worked at the local gas station.
1: (laughs) Stop. I swear. This is so
2: crazy. Um And she said, this is the gas station that's like about a mile away from her home. It's the closest one to their house. And she said the attendant had been making advances towards her and it made her feel really uneasy. Okay. And she didn't feel comfortable going there anymore, but she kind of had to because as you can imagine, gas stations are limited on the Florida Keys.
1: You mean like every time that you need gas and you're so low and then you're rushing to get to a gas station? Exactly. Okay.
2: This isn't about me, John.
1: I'm sorry. Okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
2: So um, Missy told Sharon that she didn't want to go there anymore. And Sharon mentioned the fact that, OK, this is really strange that this guy's coming on to you because you're eight months pregnant. Like you're visibly pregnant. It's kind of gross that this man's doing this. And Missy agreed and said, I, I just want this guy to like leave me alone because I kind of have to go there.
1: I mean, some people truly don't have any boundaries at all. I mean,
2: there are some weirdos. Yeah, right. I
1: mean, look. I mean, you're pregnant. You got a ring on your finger. Okay, uh, like, buddy, she's definitely not. Yeah, Yeah. she's (laughs) definitely not into you or wants anything to do with you. Plus, she's probably thinking, uh, I need to get ready to, you know, birth this child. I don't want to deal with your crap.
2: Yeah, she's not focused on illicit affair with a gas station attendant. Yeah, she's got a nursery to to make exactly. So the detectives asked the family. If they knew what Missy had been talking about and the family confirmed that they all and Mike and Missy went to this gas station. It was actually where they fueled all of their cars and their boats. So they spent a decent amount of time and money there like the whole family. Okay. So they were all also vaguely familiar with the people that worked there. So the detectives thought, okay, that's good. We're kind of going somewhere in some direction. And once we can kind of, narrow down the people that worked at this gas station, we can show a lineup to the family. In the meantime, they wanted to go back and watch the, the film, you know, the filming of the crime scene to kind of see, is there something that was overlooked here that might help us? Well, in addition to that address book being in the master bedroom, remember, there were a whole bunch of receipts poured out over the dresser, gas station receipts
1: okay oh okay i think i know what you're trying to get out here
2: so they're saying like okay well that's weird it makes sense that the couple keeps the gas receipts right because they can use it as write-offs for certain things and people just did it for their records back in 1991 i don't know i have like them all in my purse i have so many gas station receipts yeah you do so <laughs> and that's weirdly like, okay so i go get gas they give me a receipt back. I throw it in my purse, but don't forget, her purse was dumped out over the bed.
1: Right, but but to, but for what reason? I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand.
2: Well, we can all put it together. Okay. But they're like, this is weird. We just kind of went through this process with the family, and the family mentioned this gas station attendant, and here are all these gas station receipts.
1: Was the G ripped out for gas station?
2: Maybe. So the detectives looked into the criminal records of everyone who had been working at the gas station back in 1991. And one man was a known burglar. His name was Thomas Overton. The family was familiar with seeing him, and the name sounded familiar. Mike's brother said that once Overton had to ask for his ID for something, and when he showed it to him, Overton said, Oh, you look a lot like your brother. And this is after the murders.
1: That's weird. Okay.
2: Well, at the time, his brother found it kind of somewhat comforting because he missed his brother so much. And he looked up to him a lot. Yeah. So he was like, oh, it made me feel good. But now in retrospect, how ominous that is. Oh, yeah. If it's him. Thomas Overton had moved to the Keys from Pensacola after his extracurricular activities got on the radar of local police. He had been arrested several times for burglary and breaking and entering. And he had also been on the radar of Monroe County once he got there. because That's where Tavernier is located. He'd been the one who, remember, in that brainstorming session, they were like, oh, we have this guy who's a like a serial burglar and he's been suspected in a murder. That was him.
1: So they kind of just gla- they glazed right over him.
2: Yeah, because he had not been violent in the past. And they really couldn't connect him with the murder. And the murder that I'm referring to um, was the murder of Rachel Surrett, So Thomas Overton had been working at the movie theater because he had two jobs, one at the movie theater and one at the gas station. And while he had been working at the movie theater... 20-year-old Rachel Surrett had been dropped off by her father. Rachel shared with her father that there was a guy at the movie theater that kind of always gave her the creeps. Very similar to what Missy said to her sister-in-law. Later that night, Rachel was found murdered in the nearby woods. So same thing. He comes across somebody while he's working.
1: Right. So it's almost like he's stalking his victims.
2: Well, we'll get into it. Well, two. Okay. If it's her. This is all alleged. Okay. Let me keep going and then we'll get into it.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Right now in my head, I have this like bulletin bulletin board and I literally have red strings with like little pins and I'm holding them with both hands (laughs) trying to... Keep them all up. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) So Overton was never really considered as a suspect because he'd never gotten violent during the commission of any of his crimes in the past. And there was absolutely no evidence linking him to the murder of Rachel Surrett. But he was experienced, very experienced. And one thing he did in particular when he broke into the homes that he did was he liked to disarm the home alarm or security systems. And you do this by cutting the phone lines.
1: Yeah, this guy knew what he was doing. It's his M.O. Yeah.
2: Once he broke into a woman's home and wrote on her mirror and lipstick, "Next time, get a dog." What? Yeah, he was like a real big. He liked scaring people.
1: That is scary.
2: That's terrifying. That's like, that's like that urban legend where the like the girl's sleeping and she thinks a dog's licking her hand all oh, night. Oh, stop! Yeah. But it's oh the guy. god,
1: that's so weird. Okay.
2: But it's very similar to it. It's terrifying. You imagine waking up, and. On your mirror and lipstick, it says next time get a dog because someone was in your home.
1: I would be freaked out. I'd probably Uh, leave.
2: You'd have to move. Yeah. Overton had been in prison from 1982 to 1989. and And then again, just after the murder in December of 1991 until April of 1996. So... The murder of the couple took place at the end of August. He was already in prison again in December of that same year. So this seems like a compulsion to him. Yeah. This is the most suspecty suspect that I have ever seen.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean he fits the, he fits the bill.
2: Everything. So the police decide to put a tail on him because now at this point when they're doing this investigation, he'd been released from prison because it's 1996. But while they're watching him, he doesn't do anything that would give the police cause to arrest him. So they decide to push him along. They had an informant who was working for them. And Overton was kind of like a known associate of this guy. They were both burglars. I guess they somehow got together somehow. And they wanted to use him. So in October of 1996, they asked the man to arrange for Overton to get paid for a burglary. And you know how many times I say burglary? It's really, it's difficult. Please (laughs) bear with me. I'm not the best at it. It's
1: okay. I would be worse. Trust me. There's times I can't even speak. I keep
2: like tripping over it. Yeah, it's all right. So they're kind of enticing him. We're going to pay you to do this break in like he's being hired. Overton agrees. Obviously, the prison system has taught him nothing, probably just made him better at what he was doing. And the night he was set to break into this house and steal valuable items for this man, the police watched him. They watched him slink over to the house, cut the phone wires. And just as he was about to break in, they arrest him for attempted burglary.
1: Okay see he did it again though it just i mean what are the proof do you need I, in my opinion you don't even need anything no. else here i mean that's not a typical thing to do i don't think
2: N- uh, i'm gonna say no yeah at this point the detectives investigating the mcgyver case believe that they have their guy but in order to prove this they would have to make a lot of connections once he'd been arrested for the attempted burglary he had been asked to give a dna sample But he refused, as is his right. He told police that if they wanted it, they would have to get a warrant. And as I said, this is his right. But here, in this case, it might as well have been an admission of guilt.
1: Yeah. I mean, everyone else has given their uh, DNA uh, willingly.
2: Well, he doesn't even know what it's for, but I think he knows in the back of his mind, if I give my DNA to the police, they're going to link me back to that case. Oh,
1: yeah. And maybe others. Yeah, we don't know.
2: So he was adamant about this warrant. So it seemed as if they were going to have to get one. However, this case took a bizarre turn when Thomas Overton attempted to die by suicide while in police custody. So he must have known that they were kind of close to catching on to him. What happened was he asked for a razor. And because he was not on suicide watch, he was allowed to have one. It was a safety razor, but he managed to take the blade out and cut himself. Medical officials at the prison said they do not believe that this was an attempt at suicide. Instead, they believed that he had cut himself in hopes of being sent to an infirmary where it's easier to escape from.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm sure somebody like him would know that.
2: And he would need to because he's already has these two strikes against him if he gets arrested for a third time he's looking at life in prison yeah so it's his only chance he has but when the officials at the prison had to clean you know what had happened the wipes and tissues that were used to clean up his blood his blood that was given voluntarily so the tissues are now county property
1: it's just like when they, they want to get a sample and people throw... They go look through someone's garbage. Or they it's the same get thing. their cups or their cigarette yeah.
2: butts. Yes. So he so graciously decided to give his blood and police are going to use it to test it against the evidence found in the McIver case. So Overton's DNA could be compared with the semen that was found at the crime scene. So you may be thinking, How? Well, if you do or say something in jail, think along the lines of a phone call. You have no expectation of privacy. Therefore, um, he was in the custody of the county jail and he had made the choice to cut himself with the razor. So it was him giving the sample willingly. That's the legal aspects of it all.
1: I mean, it is okay. I will say it does sound a little ridiculous, but in our case here, I'm so glad that that is the way it is. I agree. Because it's gonna, it it could possibly lead to, to we're breaking a case. So I'm cool with it. It's gonna help us here. You know, totally.
2: Detectives knew that Overton was not the kind of criminal who was just going to confess. Based on what they had already heard from their profiler, they knew that he was a sociopath. So they decided to get him into an interview room under false pretenses. They know what would work to get information out of a sociopath. And what they would have to do was they would have to speak to his ego. So they told him that they wanted to speak to him about other burglaries that he'd committed in order to get some insight onto how they could stop other burglars. Like, oh, we need you to help us because you're so good at what you do.
1: Just keep inflating that ego.
2: Yeah. So they start showing him pictures from random break-ins and asking him if there's anything they should be looking out for or doing. And he's helping them a little bit here and there. Then they show him the McIver crime scene. And they say, not necessarily the crime scene, but the break-in. And they say, maybe you could help us with this one. But he doesn't budge. Then they start showing him pictures of people from the community, asking if he knows them. Most of them are no's. And then he showed a picture of Missy, and he said that she looked familiar. They show him a general picture of the MacIver house, and he said he didn't know it, that he hadn't been over that area too much. And now they're starting to push him. So you didn't burglarize that house? Oh, definitely not. I've never. Then he's shown the picture of the McIvers, together. Do you know these people? Overton said that he's never seen the man before, referring to Mike, but that Missy looked familiar, but he couldn't place where he knew her from. The detectives completely switch over now. He's angry. This is a filmed thing. They were murdered in their home, he said. And Overton then pretends like a wave of realization passes over him. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I heard about that happening. And the detective leans in. But you didn't have anything to do with those murders? No, absolutely not. And I have nothing else to say. I want to leave. I know what you're trying to do. But the detectives in the interrogation room were not ready for him to leave yet. They knew before they walked into that room that Thomas Overton's DNA was a match for the semen samples found in the house.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: And on the victim. They knew that if he denied ever being in that house, he would be lying to them. They were just waiting for that warrant to come through to arrest him. The detective calmed. Overton seemed to relax, but not for long, because the detective then said, when you cut yourself in prison, we got that blood. And we took it into the DNA lab and matched that blood up with the semen. It matched positive to you. In a sense, you cut your own throat. We got you in that bedroom on that night with those people. You were looking at a triple homicide because that was a viable baby. DNA is better than fingerprints. Do you have an explanation as to why it was there? In response, all Overton said was, can I go now? Thomas Overton was taken back to his cell. Police didn't need a confession from him. They had all they needed with a DNA match. And I kind of liked that he was playing with them. And I kind of liked that they were playing with him. Oh, yeah.
1: That was his whole way of saying, you know, we got got, you. We got you. Checkmate. You know what I mean?
2: Overton would not be brought to trial until late winter, early spring of 1999, he was charged with two counts of first degree murder, homicide of an unborn child, burglary assault, and sexual battery with a weapon or force. The trial was brutal for the family. They had to hear every detail, and those details were nothing short of horrifying and infuriating. The family also learned during the trial that Thomas Overton revealed to a cellmate in the county jail who testified with no benefit to himself that Thomas Overton said he went to the MacIver home that night with the intention to rape Missy. He wanted to do it because he described her as being hot and cold. Sometimes she was nice and sometimes she was bitchy. And that was the reason for doing what he did. And that is so interesting that he states that for his reasoning. It's so ridiculous. That he did what he did because he felt like slighted by somebody, but I feel like that also connects him to the other murder of Rachel Surrett. Oh yeah, but they could never connect him to that murder, so he was never charged with it.
1: The thing is, though, he like I said earlier, he does check all the boxes, and most likely he is, you know, the one. I know. Who... I just
2: feel bad for that family that can't get those final.
1: I I agree with you and I think the only thing the only thing I could ever say to give some sort of comfort to that is just, you know, he's in prison.
2: So okay. he was found guilty of all the charges I listed above. His sentencing went as follows. For the burglary assault and sexual battery, he was sentenced to life in prison. For the killing of an unborn child, he was given fifteen years. And for the two charges of first degree murder, he was sentenced to death by the state of Florida. But the state wasn't done with him yet. Just before he had been arrested for the murders of the McIvers, Overton had been arrested on October 5th, 1996, for burglary with an armed weapon, possession of burglary tools, and carrying a concealed firearm. He stood trial for those crimes in February of 2001. And for those, he was given an additional 20 years and a life sentence based on his crimes. And since then, all of his appeals had been denied.
1: Yeah. I mean, this guy, I mean, was, was brutal. And, like, how do you justify doing something like this to this innocent family that is awaiting their first child and to do what you did? And you didn't just kill them.
2: No, it you was tortured a, them. It, they were tortured. It was a brutal attack. And I don't know exactly how he did it, but he did it. And I, I think he'd done it before with Rachel Surrett and he got away with it. So he thought he could do it again. And he yeah. did get away with it for a while. And I think if he felt slighted by someone again, he would have done it again.
1: It's always these times in the episode that we're coming to a close and I know that sometimes my uh, my opinion might get me in trouble, but I I think he deserves to be on death row, and, and yeah. there really isn't anything to it because you know and everyone has a different feeling about the matter. But for someone to do what they did to these two people plus their unborn child, there's there's no way that he you know deserves to be yes. out there.
2: The way that he beat Mike to death and what he did to Missy and then what then happened as a result of that, it's just it's he, so disturbing yeah,
1: he doesn't bring anything good to our society at all
2: and it seemed like he acted again yeah because i think he did kill rachel sir it's uh, oh, there's a possibility it's my opinion allegedly mm-hmm. this was a crazy one right
1: i mean this was good upsetting but it was good though yeah oh my god i'm sorry i feel so bad for all these families i really do i know especially like you know you have all these you know uh you know about to be grandparents that are supposed to enjoy this moment and and kind of relish in the fact that the family's growing and here we are that these two you know,
2: amazing people are gonna become amazing parents and, yep. and raise a great child yeah it's really sad it is sad and i and this case you know i i really don't think there's a lot of podcasts on them i try not i try to pick the cases because i feel like every, more victims voices need to be heard of cases that aren't talked about more often and i feel like the McIver story really deserves to be out there and so does the story of rachel surrett
1: yeah i agree with you all
2: right so before we go i just want to say thank you to all of our new patreon members and we hope that you're enjoying all of the new episodes of this show um there's a lot of bonus ones especially in october So we just want to say thank you so much to our new Patreon supporters. And we're going to list them now. The list is a little extensive because um, with the October episode, the scary stories, we didn't thank our Patreons. So here we're going to do it. It's uh, two weeks late, but we appreciate you so much. And then all of our new supporters. So thank you to Donna Pfeiffer, who upped her pledge. Seneca. Leah White. Jamie Lee W. Melissa Waldron. Adrian Kodalik, Samantha Morris, Rachel Collins upped her pledge, Ashley, Sarah Janice, Devin Cushing, Andrea Rose, Christy Matthews, Tabitha Delgado, Jessica Manson, Elizabeth Reinhardt, Jessica DuCasey, Jessica Ball, Amy Berggren, Amanda Spates, Monique, Amy Walken, Elizabeth Kendall, Rebecca Cozart, Hannah Osborne, Monica, Allison Tylander, Jennifer Cross, Jessica Garberry, Trina Bird, Lillian Starr, Macers Racers, Danielle Grady, Laura Barley, Nicole Hampson, Rachel Swarinson, Ferre Mbule, Tina, Vivian Blackburn, Stephanie Brown, Katya Pfeiffer, Sarah Brody, Elizabeth Sperber, Rachel Bridges, Cynthia Wells, Ariel Tolk, Megan Loomley, Jordan Spain, Snowflakes, Kimberly Roster, Karen Mickish, Zachariah Keliku, I probably did not do that right, Zachariah, I apologize. Rick Johnson, Rachel Coco. Emmanuel Usher, Amy Burks, Hannah Richley, Nicole Blancett, and Rachel Collins. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. We hope you're loving the extra episodes. And until next time, don't park next to vans.